0: Thank you for tuning in to Movie Geeks United. Sam Peckinpah was one of the most influential directors of the past 50 years. He was also one of the most self-destructive. In this conversation, we speak with film professor and writer Stephen Prince, the author of Savage Cinema, Sam Peckinpah, and the Rise of Ultraviolent Movies. This interview was conducted in 2019 for our new series Movie Geek Yearbook, which also features two additional interviews with Peckinpah scholars, David Weddle and Garner Simmons. The episode in which all three of these gentlemen appear premieres August 1st. Visit MovieGeekYearbook.com for more information. And with Peckinpah, and The Wild Bunch, in which he emerged in a major way. I'm wondering what you think it was about the time that was ready for a Peckinpah.
1: I think that um, clearly it was a very different time then than it is now, in the sense that um, movies and art in general, culture in general, were connecting with the social and political moment, right? I mean, it was a kind of period across many of the, industrial countries where you had a kind of cultural revolution underway. And so those, those moments release a lot of energy and certain artists can come to the fore who kind of find ways of translating between the cultural issues of the moment and the historical openings in a medium like cinema that become possible with the fall of censorship Mm -hmm. Uh, Akira Kurosawa in Japan did something very similar right after World War II uh, using film in a kind of visionary way now um, one of the things I think that's very striking about Peckinpah when when you look back is that on the one hand he acquired a kind of huge place on the cultural landscape but it's really just a five year period where he's working at the peak of his powers right from 1968 or 69 to 1974. So that's a that's a really small window of time, and it also means that that the films that we have available from him um, in that window of time are relatively few.
0: Did you do you have the sense that he knew it was his moment when he when he made the Wild Bunch?
1: I think clearly he did. Um, there, he, he he made that film with a burst of energy, uh, partly to prove that, that he could make a movie, that he would be a bankable director. He had been idle uh, as a film director um, for several years since the um, falling out that had happened with Major Dundee. And um, this was his opportunity to come back. But he was also fired up over... The Vietnam War and over the the social protests that were going on uh, in America, and I mean he was a he was a I think a pretty acute student of the moment, and clearly with he became a sort of proselytizer for the need to reform movies in terms of screen violence. He thought that would really be a kind of way to bring cinema into the moment and also in a progressive fashion to kind of correct some of the. Um, uh, kind of misleading ideas about violence that sanitized movies in the past had created, uh, at least according to his line of thinking. So, yeah, I think he clearly felt that, um, that the stars were aligning in multiple ways. And I think this helped feed the energy with which he approached that project. Um, clearly, The Wild Bunch is a, is a Western, first of all. It's a, it's a genre picture. But um, in his hands, it became much more than that. It became a commentary on the times and uh, also a contemporary picture that was about America in 1968.
0: Did he feel that Westerns had been phony in, in, in their depiction of what it was really like?
1: He had a Yes, he had a very scruffy sense of um, the kind of primitive nature of the frontier. And I think also it's a it's a way of uh, establishing his own style, right? I mean, it's a genre that had been around for many decades, and one person's Western at that point, particularly in the 60s, was very much like uh, uh, another person's. Uh, Furthermore, um, the shadow of John Ford was still huge uh, in that genre, and um, and Peckinpah, because of the shadow of Ford, right, he he inherited that that style uh, as a template, and, and he was... Uh, overturning that as well. So, you know, the, the preoccupation with stylizing violence became a way of um, kind of uh, deconstructing the Fordian Western, mm. which he points to at the beginning of Wild Bunch by using the, the hymn that Ford had used in many of his movies, Shall We Gather at the River? You know, it's his way of saying, this is not going to be a John Ford movie.
0: Yeah, and it's in keeping with... What was a, a, a great trend in that period of time in movies that a lot of filmmakers took these firmly established genres and they thought what 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 can we do with this how can we play with this and you know and they they kind of turned a lot of those conventions on their heads but at the same time you could sense an affection a great affection for that genre just, you know
1: yes indeed I mean part of that impulse to deconstruct was also the influence of european cinema uh Mm. the the french new Wave, for example which had done precisely that for for many years now and uh so there's a it it kind of presupposes a certain cinema literacy on the part of a filmmaker where they they they've inherited the genre that they love but um there's an impulse now to sort of tinker with it and, and take it apart um, now I'm not saying that Peckinpah was cinematically literate in the way that that say the New Wave directors were, because I I don't believe he was. I think he I think he saw movies relatively infrequently, and and you know he had he had very strong tastes about what what he would like or or dislike, and he was also very competitive, right? He I don't think he praised other filmmakers very easily, mm-hmm. um, but I think that there was this kind of moment where um deconstruction was an in thing uh and a kind of self-conscious level of cinema literacy was an in thing because so many you know, internationally successful directors um were were manifesting those qualities uh and i, I, I clear, clearly peckinpah was was aware of all of that um and so i think they're you know they're we could say that the Wild Bunch is overdetermined by sort of multiple factors um, that uh, permitted uh, and, and inspired Peckinpah to to kind of create the sort of film that he did.
0: What was his? How would you describe his approach to depicting on-screen violence? Was he trying to take the romance out of it? Because I, I know I know a lot of people misconstrue. And were kind of scandalized by his <laughs> approach to uh, on screen violence at the time because it was it was much more uh, uh, graphic and gritty and uh but still almost balletic I- I- in a way
1: yeah i mean he he was he was very lucid when he said that um he was Trying to stylize violence in, in in the sense of not not depicting it in a realistic fashion stylistically, right? There, there was nothing. There's really not much that's realistic <clears throat> about the montage editing and the and the slow motion. Uh, it imposes a very elaborate sort of design on uh, the kind of gunfights that Hollywood had always handled in a much shorter, more perfunctory fashion. So. Peckinpah knew that he wasn't getting closer to any sort of, uh, I suppose, any sort of neo-realism of movie violence. Um, but I think he perhaps felt that there was a kind of psychological realism that he was approaching, in the sense that he was shifting depictions of violence away from the sanitized terms that had prevailed in American movies, mm-hmm. and that that and that by by doing this, this would be inherently a move in the direction of a kind of psychological emotional realism that, uh, that those other films perhaps did not have.
0: What's fascinating to me is that when The Wild Bunch hits, and it, it's, it's regarded by many as a, as a great work of genius and, a, and a, a game changer.
1: Not so much at first, actually.
0: <laughs> oh, Really? Well, I mean,
1: there, there were a, there were a few critics who defended it. I mean, Roger Ebert, for example, uh, understood that he had seen something extraordinary. But um, no, at first the critical reception was was not rhapsodic. Uh, the film is was really it was too abrasive, and um, you know, I I like to think that. In terms of the the impact that the Wild Bunch had, that there are sort of relatively few threshold moments like that in movie history, where a filmmaker has done something so audacious that it just it 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 it, it stuns audiences, and I think that kind of thing didn't happen again really until um, the opening sequence of Saving Private Ryan by Steven Spielberg.
0: Mm.
1: The difference, though, between those two films is that. The carnage in Saving Private Ryan is kind of rehabilitated because it's situated within a narrative about conventional kinds of heroism, and where the the moral coordinates are far more conventional than what Peckinpah did. So not only did Peckinpah present a sort of unprecedented level of brutality, but he upset all the moral landmarks as well that oriented movie viewers in the period uh, as to how they should be feeling about the characters and the story. And I think those two things made the picture kind of a dangerous movie.
0: Mm -hmm. But he had, he had essentially established a a brand, uh, an expectation after a wild bunch and mm-hmm. what's interesting to me is how he subverts that in the Ballad of Cable Hogue, uh, in some way a much—it's—it's a—it's a minor key movie, but you know,
1: yeah, yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a good way to describe it uh, as a kind of minor key film where he's he's uh, really shifting gears. Um, I find um, Cable Hogue is a much, of course, a much sweeter film. It's not audacious like The Wild Bunch is. And it's a film where you see a different side of him. Um, although I think, I think in that film, too, he's, he shows us that he's always been a much more acute director at showing the failure of relationships than he has at showing their success. And, um, and I, think that, I think that many great directors are that way. Ingmar Bergman, for example, is extremely skilled at showing us why and how relationships fail <laughs> rather than succeed. So that puts Peckinpah in good company. Um, and I think, yes, today directors get typecast very quickly, and, and Peckinpah helped typecast himself at the time of Wild Bunch with all of his remarks about, um, about movie violence. Uh, he, he became the poet of, modern screen violence, and then in his, in his follow-up movie, he's, he's not really exploring that. So, so people found that a little confusing. And then he, he he tacked right back in that direction, of course, with Straw Dogs, mm. but then stepped away from it once again with Junior Bonner. So, you know, he's kind of keeping critics a little bit off balance about what sort of a director he's, he's going to be.
0: So what do you think in The Ballad of Cable Hoag? Uh, how do you think it it expresses something unique about life in the, in the West.
1: I think that Cable Hoag shows us how precarious life is in, in the West, in a desert environment. Um, you know, the whole business about whether there's water there or not, finding it where it isn't. Um, it's a difficult environment in which to survive. Now, he, he plays it in terms of a comedy in that film, but still there's an underlying harshness that is is there in the land itself, uh, and that if you're if you're working there, you really can't escape. Let me add, though, that I think in Cable Hogue, while he's showing how harsh the environment is and how difficult it is to survive, as he had done in The Wild Bunch, he's also in Cable Hogue infusing it with a a sweetness, mm-hmm. um, a, a gentleness that's that's partly there in the main character and is also partly there in what that character finds with Hildy when they spend time together at Cable Springs. And yeah. I think those elements are ones that did not exist in The Wild Bunch.
0: What, what do you think his perception was of the traditional uh, the male-female relationships? I mean, that the the, the alpha male, the female, what do you think that dynamic was that he portrayed in a lot of his films? I, I
1: think that, well, you know, that's such a, that's such a complicated question because Peckinpah was so complicated. Um, I think that one of the reasons he was able to make these extraordinary films in this small little window of time, this five year interval, uh, is inseparable from the fact that he was a damaged individual, right? I mean, a lot of times um, the qualities that that make a, a piece of art interesting, like a film interesting, uh, it's inseparable from the flaws and, and failings of the people who, you know, are creating those works. You take those flaws and failings away and you, you've, you've, you would have wound up with a changed outcome, a different sort of film. So I think in Peckinpah's case, he had, trem- he had tremendous levels of skepticism and distrust about women. Um, I think he was a little schizoid in that he uh, clearly loved them. He could be a great ladies man, but then there were also levels of, of anger and resentment. and And those things wrestle with one another in, in the movies he made, I think never more so than in, in uh, Straw Dogs. Uh, yeah. I think what, what saves Peckinpah in the end, not, not in every film, there, I think there are some moments in some of the movies that are pretty inexcusable, but I think what saves him, and, and, and certainly as I've argued in terms of Straw Dogs, is that he had as well a very acute sense of the, of the pathology of the male, right, male pathology, very strong sense of that. And so he, you know, he explores that in a picture like Straw Dogs, even as he's giving expression to his uh, lack of trust uh, toward women. Um, And so there's this kind of battle, this psychodynamic battle going on within that film, which is why it's so charged
0: and polarized uh, with, with you know, do you contrary feel that, energies. Do you feel like he had a strong sense of himself, shortcomings, and all?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think that I think that um, I think that Straw Dogs is a kind of uh, psychotherapeutic exercise, where he's exploring um, his own uh, demons uh, on screen, much as he hmm. did in Alfredo Garcia. You know, I think in both of those movies he shows us um, male cruelty uh, toward women but I don't believe he's celebrating that cruelty in those films. Um, now, and things are much sweeter in Ballad of Cable Hogue*, even though, you know, the Hildy character is a kind of male archetype of what, you know, a woman might be, right? The, the whore with a heart of gold. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a, that's a male archetype. Uh, so that's a, that's a, that's a limitation on that movie. Um, uh, but the performances by Stella Stevens and Jason Robards are very heartfelt, and so you know it kind of breathes life into that that old archetype in a way.
0: It, it's, 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 he, but he, you you mentioned the cast, and he had uh, a stable of actors, uh, and I would assume that he was generally well regarded by actors. Is is, is that true, or was he combative combative with them?
1: He could be combative with them. He could be difficult. I think it, you know, a bit like Stanley Kubrick, right? I mean, actors who would work with him uh, again and again were willing to take these journeys, right? And I think both both Kubrick and Peckinpah took his actors on remarkable journeys mm. uh, that they they wouldn't experience with other directors. Now, so, now for some performers, it, it, it involved things that they didn't want to they didn't want to experience. They didn't want to be a part of that. But the people that hung around and came back for more, um, I think, valued that uh, very unusual kind of uh, way of working. Um, You know, Peckinpah would do a lot of things to create the atmosphere of the film among the actors uh, off the set. Yeah. Uh, And I think that, you know, that could be exciting. It could be disturbing. It it certainly kept them off balance. Since for many people, they would do work that was among the best in their career. I mean, I think James Coburn, for example, was never better in any film than in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid.
0: Mm. Yeah, it, and it's interesting that 71 was the year of Clark Rock Orange and Straw Dogs. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. two, two movies that absolutely scandalized people. And I remember Polly Kale calling Straw Dogs a fascist work of art. It, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so he uh, would,
1: I mean he would he would rise to the level I think of the actors that he was working with and when he felt when he felt challenged or deeply respectful toward them, I think that he it brought out the best in him. You know, I'm thinking in particular of Dustin Hoffman and Straw Dogs, and I'm also thinking of um,
0: Susan Ida George
1: Lupino, so? Ida Lapino oh, 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 and uh, Junior Bonner. Who who had been a, who was a filmmaker. She made she was a director for, for movies and television. A great
0: filmmaker, yeah. I love. Yes,
1: her. and and you know you look at the way that he handles her on screen. Um, I mean that her character in that film is quite a unique character in Peckinpah's work because she's she's not an archetype. She's not a, a mother or a whore, right? Um, she's a she's a tough, flinty, compassionate strong woman the um, mm. sort that you know is kind of singular in in his movies and i think a lot of that has to do with Ida Lupino's presence on the set and and Peckinpah's own attitude
0: toward having her there yeah yeah i think i recall reading Peckinpah's letter to Pauline Gale in response to her review mm-hmm, of mm-hmm, Straw Dog
1: mm-hmm. fascism has connotations to me that are deeply offensive
0: yeah that that being considered though did, did he relish uh,
1: uh,
0: his role as provocateur?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, he, he loved being the bad boy. And I think this, this had repercussions for him. It was one of the things that helped him to sabotage his career um, because then he did get that reputation. And, and he, when he would be belligerent, he would say things that were not responsible. And I think that some of the comments he made when he was giving press interviews on Straw Dogs uh, hurt that film and hurt its reception. He mm. he, he made the movie sound more uh, Neanderthal than in fact it is.
0: So what do we understand about Straw Dogs now uh, that we didn't understand then because it was it, it was too startling for us then.
1: Well, I think now that it's been remade, I think you can you can see how. More conventionally, the material might have been handled. In other words, the remake, I think, gives us much more clear and reassuring moral landmarks to hold on to as we go through the story. You know, uh, Straw Dogs is a really—it's an assault on the viewer, um, not just in terms of the violence, but in terms of the you know the emotional chaos that it unleashes upon the viewer. You know, it just—it upends all of the the moral signposts that we look for in a movie. It's interesting. And there aren't many I, films really that do that.
0: Yeah. And I, I remember talking to Rob Laurie when he was making that. And, and uh, you know, he said I wanted to do a, a humanistic version of Straw Dogs. Yeah. And yeah. and but, but what, what makes, what makes Straw Dogs so extraordinary is the venom, the, the conflict, uh, and what, what would it be? Would you take that away? What would be the point of that?
1: Yes, and, and I think the, the the extraordinary thing about that about Straw Dogs is that um, it's not about nihilism, right? It's showing us terrible things. It's you know I suppose in some ways it's like Pasolini's Sallow, mm. where you just see all of this horrible stuff, and yet the movie is not. It, that's not what it's. Affirming or celebrating or glorifying. In fact, it's it's pointing in the opposite direction. Um, and I think it's really kind of rare in a commercial industry when a filmmaker does that. When he,
0: yeah.
1: when the things that he believes in, are things that he's showing the complete opposite of on screen.
0: Mm. Yeah, and that, that's that, that's the great conflict of of the movie too. Where uh, yeah. and there are movies thin too where you. You didn't quite know how to feel about it. What exactly are your intentions with this movie? And it was that ambiguity that made yeah, me survive yeah. in your mind.
1: But, you know, isn't that a good thing, though, a lot in mm-hmm. movies when you're not, you're not sure how you're supposed to feel about it? Um, you know, I mean, how are we supposed to feel about Ethan Edwards in The Searchers? Mm-hmm. Ford doesn't tell us. Yeah. And that's one reason that film, uh, uh, I think, uh, is, is a haunting experience. Uh, it's, it's a good thing. I think it's a, often a good thing when filmmakers don't tell you how you're supposed to think. I mean, look at the end of Do the Right Thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Spike Lee
1: doesn't tell you what the right thing is, right? He, he turns it over to you at the end of the film.
0: I want to ask you about one other movie that I believe you did commentary for, and it has a connection to Peckinpah. And, and I think it's an extraordinary movie. And that's One-Eyed Jacks. Am I am I oh, right yeah. about that? Yeah. Um, yes, I
1: did the commentary on the Arrow Blu-ray.
0: And I adore that movie. It, it, I'm yeah. so sad that Brando never directed again. Because I think we were talking about subverting expectations. I think that movie does that at, 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 at so many turns.
1: Yes. Yes, yes, it's um, it's 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 a deconstruction of the Western, right? You see that going on as early as as uh, One Eyed Jacks, um, and you can find some of the traces of Peckinpah's small role in the screenplay on that film, right? The, you know, the, some of the depictions of violence as they were written but not filmed, I think, can can be seen as as partly his influence, and um, I think as well that. The, in so many ways, the setting, the cinematography, the psychodynamics of the characters, um, particularly the doubling, right? The Carl the, mm. the, the Malden, Marlon Brando characters, that, that doubling is a, a central motif in many of Peckinpah's films. That sense of betrayal, that sense of an inability to let go of the past, that sense of being haunted by the past, right? We see all that in, in The Wild Bunch, in Alfredo Garcia and, and Pat Garrett, for example. So I think perhaps in some ways, you know, the, the, what Brando had achieved in The Wild Bunch then sort of filtered down uh, to, uh, to Peckinpah's later films.
0: I think so, too. And also the notion of heroics, because uh, you, in the Westerns are <clears throat> designed for kind of a black hat, white hat. And there's, yeah. the moment, there's a moment when the hero rises victorious. You know, the, the yes, and, of...
1: and in one and, and Peckinpah deconstructs that, but of course, so had Brando, right? In the yes. end of One-Eyed Jacks, his character um, doesn't really want to engage in that gunfight with uh, Dad Longworth, the Carl Molden character. And then when they do have the gunfight, he prevails by shooting Dad in the back.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: So that's <laughs> it's, it's it happens quickly and a little obliquely. Um, and the movie passes over that moment, but that's a pretty severe violation of the, the code of the Western as it applies to the hero.